0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, sustainability editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's
1: co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture.
0: This episode is brought to you in association with Danish rooflight manufacturer Velux.
2: Absolute sustainability is very, very easy. In many ways, sustainability has never been more complex than it is now. But in one way, it is really, really straightforward. We have one planet. There is a carbon budget. There is one planet. You can use this much kilo CO2.
0: How much do you want to spend on uh, buildings? How much do you want to spend on transport? Today we're speaking to Lona Pfeiffer, a Copenhagen-based architect who has had a 23-year career with Velux and is currently Velux's director for sustainable buildings. In this episode, Lona shares with us her global perspective on sustainability and why she believes that people must be at the heart of good design. Her premise is that user experience combined with quality and value equals sustainable design. After almost a decade with Velux, Lona returned to school for a postgraduate master's in energy and green architecture at Tsinghua University in Beijing because she wanted a better grounding in evidence-based design. She also managed Velux's model home project of prototype houses in five European countries, which included two semi-detached carbon light homes in Kettering, Northamptonshire, completed over a decade ago. Lona is a board member of the Royal Danish Academy and general secretary of the Active House Alliance. In her current role, she has launched VELUX's Build for Life program, an initiative that acknowledges the massive impact that the built environment has on both people and the planet. And she is spearheading new housing design that both enhances health and treads lightly on the planet. Lona. After completing your architecture degree in Aarhus, what prompted you to join Velux? Thank you, Hattie, and thank you for the invitation.
2: I graduated as an architect in '93, and back then there was very little out, outlook to, uh, to work in uh, Denmark, at least. Then at that time, it was all on in Berlin. So together with a couple of fellow uh, students who also just graduated, we went to Berlin and gave it a shot to see if we could get some work. And we did. Within two weeks, we all had jobs in offices, and we stayed on for six years and came back in '99. It was quite a lot of workload, uh, but also I basically tried everything, building sites, design, um, building applications, uh, and uh, new and, and old and big and small projects. So I was sort of quite satisfied on that part and thought I'd like to keep working internationally.
0: And that was Velux. Did you ever imagine that you would spend a lifetime with Velux? No, definitely not. I hadn't spent uh,
2: any more than two years in any place when I started there. and It is a bit of a company that has, at least for some people... Uh, work, uh, very good work
0: life balance and offering a lot of opportunities. In your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as an architect by education and credo and a Swiss knife when it comes to people management strategy and innovation. Can you share a little bit about your approach to selling sustainability first within the company and then beyond? Because sometimes it's a tough sell. Yes, you're right. It absolutely is. I
2: think being an architect is, uh, of course, a profession, but it's also a choice for life. Uh, and it was for me, definitely. I would like to make a difference for as many people as possible. I believe that architecture has the possibility uh, to change and improve lives for many people. I have then have my, my agency, so to say. My main agency has been in Velux because I've been... Now, there for 23 years. After practicing as an architect, knowing what the profession was all about, that was very, very useful.
1: We've been speaking to guests who work in several different countries the UK, France, Bangladesh, Finland. You're based in Denmark, but Vellux is a global company. And you studied sustainable building in China, so you have a broad perspective on how sustainability is perceived differently in, in different places. Here in the UK, we sometimes have the idea that Denmark is far ahead of us in sustainability. Is that true, do you think? And what are the main issues of sustainability that people are working on in Denmark? The main issue in Denmark is definitely whole life carbon. We
2: are very focused uh, on the whole life carbon in particular because from 1st of January 2023, it's obligatory to provide a life cycle assessment on your building. And it is including all the, I would say, main phases, still some phases uh, excluded, but um, it is all the main phases. So everything from segregation, uh, materials, construction, operations, exchange within the 50 years life uh, time span, and then uh, end of life. So is that part of the building regulations? Yes, it's coming into effect. And um, I don't think that Denmark is the only country. I think there's also good work going on in Finland and France. So it's not like we are uh, way ahead of others. But it's quite novel still also to the industry. And you can feel the, that uh, stakeholders are getting more and more nervous. Because 1st of January 2023 is, is, is very close. And it's not just that you have to provide a life cycle assessment uh, and actually end up with a number before the CO2-kilo equivalents per square meter per year, you also have to stay below benchmarks. Uh, For instance, uh, housing can only be up to 12. Uh, You cannot uh, exceed 12 kilo
0: CO2 equivalents per square meter per year, as from 2023. So does that force product manufacturers like yourselves to be more transparent? With data, Yes, we have to, of course, comply with this uh, in Denmark,
2: but in general, uh, it's uh, completely in line with how we see sustainable buildings. We are strong believers that you regard a building over the total life cycle. This has not so much been the case in the past. Often buildings have been or are accounted for by, for instance, the heat loss, and so are our products. And that's actually not fair, because it doesn't take into account the, the value um, or the contributions that it has during the lifetime. And that has been a problem, generally, since the 70s, when we had the um, the last oil crisis, I might say, uh, 50 years ago. Uh, we were struck by the um, scarcity of uh, oil, and that led to double glazing in, in Europe. I know it, it, it came to UK a bit later, but Here in the building codes in in Germany and Denmark, that's where the uh, double glazing became mandatory and insulation and so on. And we've been on a path since then to make these um, specifications and codes better and better. But now we're at a point and have been for actually maybe 10, 15 years where we also need to consider, um, well, summer comfort. That can be uh, a problem uh, in, in many places. And also air quality uh, is is beginning to suffer from this sometimes a bit singular focus on uh, heat loss. Also we have um, on marketing level the um, consumer ombudsman regarding the interest of the general uh, consumer. And there was a verdict or a description here um, half a year ago where it was uh, formulated quite hard that you cannot call something sustainable. If you cannot provide proof for the harm it does, as in a life cycle assessment, it's very helpful because there's a lot of greenwashing out there, and there's a lot of, uh, yeah, people saying, "Oh, it's sustainable, yeah," but what is sustainable? And the the last thing I would say as a answer to your question, George, is that um, the issue of
0: absolute sustainability. I was just going to ask you about that. What's on everybody's uh, everybody's mind? Yeah. So what is that? I haven't heard really the term absolute sustainability. I've heard from big, I've heard hedonistic sustainability. Yeah. But what, what's absolute sustainability then?
2: Absolute sustainability is very, very easy. In many ways, sustainability has never been more complex than it is now. But in one way, it is really, really straightforward. We have one planet. We can use it once per year the resources that you have Um, and you're probably familiar with the term world overshoot day for instance in Denmark we have overshoot day 28th of March so we're using basically four planets in one year and uh, the exercise is easy come from four planets down to one and the big difference there is that with all the u values and heat loss that I just mentioned uh, a bit earlier That was relative numbers, always relative to something, uh, improving something relative to previously. We don't have to do that anymore. It's very easy. There is a carbon budget. There is one planet. You can use this much kilo CO2. How much do you want to spend on uh, buildings? How much do you want to spend on transport? Um, it's, um, It's fairly easy set, but then of course, there is the whole calculation, drilling it down.
0: And, and delivering it. We, delivering it on the ground. And delivering it. Yes, that's, that's of course, a big uh, issue.
2: What we can see is uh, that with homes, you um, should be below four kilo CO2 equivalents per square meter per year, probably down to something like two, two and a half, depending on how big your home is. And that is also groundbreaking because that is no longer relative. It's always been relative in sustainability. For instance, if you account for kilowatt hours per square meter per year, you can basically, you can build a house which is 300 square meters and it's sustainable. But is it sustainable if you are one person living on
0: 300 square meters? Maybe not so much. We had a really interesting conversation with an additional studio based in Manchester they do a lot of house extensions and retrofits about how they convince clients to actually build less you know which is as an architect it's kind of counterintuitive having said it's very very simple it of course only makes a lot of things more
2: complex uh because uh, just judging a building by its uh, ability to not lose so much heat as we did 10 15 years ago um is of course so much easier than having to relate to the size of of the building and the square meter but it should lead to the most important thing which
0: would be better quality so one of your main projects at the moment is the build for life program can you tell us exactly what's that all about and why you've defined that as your main focus at the moment
2: Build for Life is a target uh, in our sustainability strategy. We have uh, formulated a sustainability strategy in VELUX uh, in 2020. And and on the top ambitious level, there are three pioneer targets where we want to take uh, action leadership, not only thought leadership, but also action leadership, and together with the industry in partnership, uh, lead the necessary change. And the first target is to neutralize the uh, company lifetime uh, carbon footprint from 1941, when VELUX was founded, to 2041 with a hundred years anniversary. uh, We have uh, launched a project with World Wildlife Foundation, WWF, uh, which is five forest projects that accounts for the full footprint that VELUX has uh, had in those hundred years. So that's initiated in 20 and then executed from um, over the 20 years. Saying in a way that in 2041, it will be as if the company in a carbon footprint way hasn't been here. So it's a kind of offset. It's actually not an offset because with an offset, um, you would offset and keep doing as you do. We neutralize the carbon footprints. Um, in in I've heard our CEO mention it as scope four. Uh, in a way because it's a whole new category of accounting for for carbon which is uh, nobody has uh, actually done yet but the idea is that you cannot only look from now onwards you actually also have to look towards the past and uh, account for what where you come from that's the idea behind it
1: i don't think i've seen that approach before uh, of yeah looking backwards to say oh well you know what if we yeah what do we need to kind of neutralize from from then yeah
2: it is quite novel. It's uh, Microsoft has uh, said they would uh, do something similar. They uh, launched the news before that. We haven't seen the the plans in place, uh, if they had that put that behind it. But we have it in place with uh, WWF, uh, and that is. T- done and settled the plans for the next 20 years.
1: So also within uh, the intention behind Build for Life is that carbon is reduced by 70% of the of, of the buildings, that's in line with uh, uh, Denmark's goal for 2030? Yes, f- uh, for sure, probably more even. Build
2: for Life is the third pioneer target. The second pioneer target is that we will, as a company, that is why it's not an offset, because we, as a second target, will become uh, 100% uh, zero or having um, removed uh, the carbon of the company uh, by 2030. That is the, um, the company operations and then the, um, our products will be reduced by 50% carbon footprint by 2030. And that's a huge chunk because that is uh, our whole product portfolio. Uh, that needs to go in half. And Build for Life is then number three, adding to the two previous one, which is sort of accounting for ourselves, our own personal footprint and, and the products that we provide. We say that with um, the building project that we are building to prove Build for Life, because it's not enough to say that that uh, this is what you want to do. You can't just tell, you have to show as well. So we will build homes called Living Places, and they have they go from what is standard in Denmark today, namely 12, Kilo CO2 equivalents per square meter to below four, and the indoor climate goes from class three to class one, which is the best one. So it is tripling.
0: So that, that was my next question was to ask you more about the living places. I really like this idea of action leadership versus thought leadership and, you know, actually building a project which can showcase this seems like such a good idea. Is it right in the center of Copenhagen? It includes a couple of houses plus some community buildings? That's
2: the prototype that we're building for the World Architectural Year or Capital um, 2023. You probably know the uh, UIA, the International Architects Union. We are the hosts of UIA 2023 Congress next year in July in Copenhagen. And with this Congress comes the UNESCO title of being a uh, world capital of architecture. And this is our launch pad for the actual buildings, living places. Uh, so we build a small community in the center of Copenhagen, centrally, where people attending Congress and, and others coming by uh, during 2023 can go see for themselves. Because talking about building is good and fine, but you have to take it all the way, you have to put it up and uh, see it and it's a very tactile um, and concrete thing and that is why we can say that we have um, solid uh, calculation proof that uh, this will be uh, below four uh, kilo co2
0: in footprint so there are some images on your website we'll put a link in the show notes but what are the community buildings that go along with the housing how are you seeing that people will live differently in the future we are, I think,
2: about 15 uh, as a team in Belux uh, working with this. And between us, we have done more than 30 demonstration buildings in the past 20 years in 22 countries. And this has given us, well, first of all, I think the courage to be able to say that we think we can be part of uh, showing the way forward, taking on a pioneer target. But uh, secondly, also, all the knowledge and and insights we have from that, the the carbon light homes in Kettering were were one of these, tells us that you can no longer just think about the houses as one, you know, four walls and uh, and one unit household. Also, looking at corona, it's obvious that the context, the coherence and um, what is around you, the... um, Well, the village, the urban, the the suburb, it's extremely important. And in a way, I think we're seeing a break, a change of thinking from the modernist industrial society that we are, well, a product of uh, since the 40s and 50s, where you were silos. You had one place where you worked, you had another place where you lived and a third place where you went shopping. And that has given a lot of structure to our cities as they are now, but you might not even know your neighbor because you are sort of focused on having everything that you need inside your four walls. Thus homes getting bigger and bigger, less and less sustainable, bigger and bigger footprint. And looking at this, we had to take on not just the four walls this time, but sort of thinking, but what is it that people will want to do when they, you know, go outside their own house and they want community. They want to know their neighbor. They want to have identification, sense of belonging, security, sense-making, all of this. And that is why the community uh, facilities are uh, extremely important. So that's why we don't only show one house. We actually show, um, well, seven. Uh, And popularly speaking, I think uh, professionals say that you have to have between 12 and 19 units um, to make a
0: group or a community. So what are some of the uses that are in proposed in the other buildings? Is it like the laundry or is it kind of multi-purpose rooms?
2: Yeah, also sports, uh, fitness, uh, that, of course, is also um, good outdoor planning, good uh, planning of um, of uh, the exteriors. Community garden. Exactly. Uh, playgrounds and uh, spaces, not only places for boys that want to do uh, skating, but, uh, but also places to sit for the elderly and so on. So it has to be a much more diversified uh, urban spaces than we have uh, known maybe for the past years. But yeah, the facilities has to be, um, it could be uh, your guest room, Uh, the extra guest room could obviously be shared, Uh, laundry, uh, the large kitchen uh, so that you have a kitchen fit for making for the family, and then you have the opportunity to go and make bigger things. And then workspace, yeah, working from home,
0: uh, shared workspace. So this, this project is on site and will be complete by next July? Actually, November this year. It's uh, complete, so I
2: invite you and the listeners uh, to come to Copenhagen during 2023 to see for yourself. We built in different um, construction methods because sustainable building very quickly turns towards being about wood. I know you've also discussed this and you had this the, the, the episode discussing uh, CLT and the uh, the comment was exactly uh, that that is in a way replacing concrete having solid timber which may not be the 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 best option that's what we have found as well but CLT has some other advantages so we built in two ways we built a timber frame and a CLT we built with a hybrid ventilation and with natural ventilation only so with in-roof solar, um, without in-roof solar, so it's like, it's not a building exhibition, but in a way it is. So you're able to see different solutions because there's not there's not one way uh, sustainable buildings
1: look like. I mean, that is, uh, we're far beyond that. You've also been a big player in the Active House Alliance. It's less well known in the UK. So could you please tell us what an active house is? Is it Passive House's evil twin? <laughs> Some people like to
2: uh, to think so. But that that comes more from uh, the pacifists. It's definitely not in conflict with passive house. I took a postgraduate master uh, to get behind sustainable buildings a bit more than what I had from my uh, architectural education. And I learned with one of the pioneers, uh, Walter Unterreiner, who's an Austrian architect and built some of the first passive houses. He's a brilliant architect and... Um, has built some of the first very convincing examples. So I know this uh, the thinking behind Passive House very well. Active House might have come as a reaction to Passive House, but more as a next generation than a conflict. The basic difference between the two is that uh, Active House is equally focused on comfort, energy and environment, and it's very basic. It's only nine indicators, something that you can talk to any client uh, about. It's not as expert focused as uh, Passive House is. It's a very small and, and, and easy scheme that can go into Briam, DG&B, uh, for that sake, Passive House and uh, and Well. And it was originally focused towards smaller uh, homes and the very basic difference is that it considers comfort in a relative way. I don't want to say anything bad about passive houses because they can be really excellent. I've seen some fantastic examples. I have also seen some not so good examples with maybe not so good architects or engineers not understanding it's not that the energy design is bad but the solar design understanding a house all seasons All four seasons of the year. All 24 hours. And that's back to this singular focus. That if you think you're building a house to save uh, heat uh, in the winter, it's much more than that. And the active house takes the relative approach. For instance, I'm now sitting in the shade outside in 31 degrees. I can actually easily breathe and talk to you. And if you convert that to house design, you would accept that you inside have a 7 degrees colder temperature than outside but it might be over 27 which the passive house scheme does not allow because it thinks in absolutes.
0: Ah, So it's more about adaptive comfort. Exactly but actually uh, I could refer to the active house UK
2: chapter which has just been uh, founded um, during the active house symposium in uh, April and there are some very good um, uh, professionals working with it. Emma Miller is um, an architect uh, working with this i have a colleague neil freshwater there's also the first active house in uk that opened last year in uh, the south of england so there are some um, people working with it and uh, who wants to 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 take this uh, approach which is not in contradiction to the uh, commercial schemes because active house is not a commercial scheme it's um, it's a non-for-profit Uh, which may be one of the reasons for why it is not as huge as the others.
0: Well, we'll put more links in the show notes. Both Build for Life
1: and Active House emphasize having good daylight inside and of course you work for a window company. In the UK, planning policies generally push buildings apart to get sunlight onto the facades, but as a consequence of that, in urban areas we get a lot of deep-plan layouts of single-aspect flats with windowless kitchens and bathrooms and the building regulations for heat loss and overheating encourage very small windows. So how do you think public policy should address daylight? Uh, Russell Forster,
2: the famous uh, researcher who actually has uh, been part of the team discovering um, the physiological needs that we have for daylight, regulating our bodies, circadian uh, daylight and so on. So it's... um, It's not just something that you should treat uh, lightly. Uh, It's actually something that our bodies uh, need. But the um, answer to that is the new um, standard that has come out, the new daylight standard. The European norm is 17037, um, but that I think it's also used in the UK, which accounts for uh, having uh, well-lit rooms not only at the front, but also diving uh, deeper back. And it uh, basically uh, forces uh, designers to focus on the quality of the daylight and not just the quantity of, for instance, oh, I have a facade window, which is this and this size, and then a percentage of
0: the floor area, and then we're fine, because that's not good enough. So this summer, we had a heat wave. In fact, we're recording during the heat wave, which has baked much of the planet and in the UK, people aren't generally used to the idea that they should shut their windows when it's hotter outside. So what's the answer? Do we need more public education about how to stay cool or do we need greater automation of building systems? How do you see this? We can do
2: both. Of course you can make buildings smart so that they can um, make sure the windows are closed and run down the uh, external blinds that can for instance what we produce can keep out up to 80 percent of the heat so that's extremely efficient but of course you have to remember to take it down so it could be a smart building or it can be a dumb building with smart people because we would be able to look after our own health uh, in a sufficient way Uh, we were before uh, penicillin was um, invented. And air conditioning. Hospital has nice big windows. People were rolled out to to get better in sanatoriums in the sun and it worked. My own dad uh, recovered from tuberculosis that way in in the thirties. So we knew all about that, but we have sort of removed ourselves from it. Letting the building or the facility manage and uh, uh, run all of that. And coming to COVID, and now with the heat wave, uh, it's it's a bit the same problem. We lack the understanding and the sensibility towards how we can take responsibility for our immediate indoor climate, which we can.
0: I totally agree with you. And, you know, oddly, my my father was Italian and he also had TB in the 30s and and was sent to the Alps. Well, we, we can thank the sun for the fact that we are here then, Hattie. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I I could uh,
2: like to just quote Joseph Allen. You might know him. He has written the excellent book, uh, Healthy Buildings, uh, that came out just at the beginning of the pandemic. He could, of course, not know how, um, how relevant that would be. But he has a wonderful quote uh, because he says, the person who runs your building, des- the person who designs and runs your building is more important to your health than your general practitioner. People think, no, I, I think I know when the air quality is not so good. But people don't.
1: Roof lights can be susceptible to overheating because they're angled towards the sun. You can specify uh, electrically operated external blinds to prevent overheating. When should designers consider these? I would say any
2: designer, uh, either retrofitting or uh, designing a new building, should consider all three... Um, uh, aspects or dimensions of the comfort, the energy and the environment. And you have to consider it all at once, you cannot take them one by one. And for instance, with, um, with windows, some designers uh, have been known to only consider it as a provision for daylight. And for instance, the um, chimney effect, which we used uh, heavily in the catering uh, buildings uh, that we built, the model home 2020. We could see that uh, having a balance between the air exchange and uh, night cooling, where the windows were slightly open, and then um, external blinds during the day, meant that there was no cooling necessary, and they kept a very, very good um, temperature during the day. It was HTA architects who um, designed uh,
0: the building. I, I know that project. We'll put a link in the show notes. So shading on the outside of glazing where it has the most impact is increasingly important for heatwave resilience, but it's still quite rare in the UK. So what ideas from other countries should we be bringing here? Yes, it's it's quite a cultural thing, external
2: um, shades. I lived in Germany for a number of years and in the cities you have the what's called Rolläden. And I kid you not, around 7 o'clock in the evening, the shutters go down in many of the ground floors and they leave out all the lights. Um, and that's um, that's a given. We also had it in our demonstration building in uh, in Brussels that the Test family living in there preferred to keep out the outdoor world. That was uh preference. So there's a lot of sense of security, uh, cultural aspects that you have to take into line. You cannot just account on the technical uh, specifications and say, uh, oh, it'll keep out 80%, so um, just go and do it. People won't necessarily. Also, I know in the UK I've heard people say, yeah, it's too windy here, it won't work. <laughs> um, and in that case, you can, of course, use good old-fashioned um, shutters. I've seen that work in a lot of ways. Very low-tech pragmatic solution, you have it uh, like barns, where you have it on the side of the window. And when you want to protect, uh, or keep the heat out,
0: you, you put it uh, up in front of the window. I think the point you made earlier about we as individuals taking more responsibility for controlling our, our, our internal climate is, is so critical. Exactly. We've lost that art.
2: And that goes
0: for buildings, any
2: buildings. How do, how do they actually function uh, in use? And that's the real value. And that's where I think if we could only focus more on the value rather than the price, because another famous guy is Warren Buffet. He said price is what you pay, but value is what you get.
1: And if we know we get value, we are willing to pay. Thinking about glazing more generally, you sometimes hear that you don't recoup the extra energy embodied in triple glazing compared to double from the energy that that saves. In passive house in the UK climate you have to have triple glazing because otherwise the radiant temperature would be uncomfortably cold and people might turn up the heating to compensate which would lose more energy. What's your view on this? Well,
2: I, there is, it's not black and white, but I have to say that this is where exactly where the active house and the passive house uh, philosophies differ. Because given the, the absolutes of nothing below 22 degrees and nothing above 26 degrees, that will dictate uh, something like three-layer glazing or forced ventilation or even cooling, actually. It will lead to cooling, which is in many ways much more energy expensive than uh, than heating. And given the current uh, heat wave, I think it's obvious that this is a much bigger challenge. Um, And we have prepared for the heat loss for 50 years, but we are only just starting when it comes to, uh, to the cooling. But I think this is exactly where you have to take the whole life carbon approach. Whole life carbon, but also all seasons, because that is when you can see, does it make sense? Maybe it does, three layer glazing towards the north, Uh, But it might not always do in the same house one solution. It can be different windows, different functions, different sizes. And that is where sometimes passive house uh, criteria are interpreted quite uh, abruptly and crudely. And that leads to results which can be over-technologified.
0: A lot of architects I talk to who are leading the way on this are arguing for less technology and more people controlling their own environments through intervention. But you know that works maybe more in a domestic environment. We also wanted to ask you, given that Velux has built so many model buildings, I didn't realize as many as you mentioned earlier, is there one particular standout project that you would like to bring to the attention of our listeners? That's a hard question, choose amongst your, your babies. But maybe I'd rather point
2: towards uh, the future. We are also making an innovation house, which is um, our own premises. And it's being built in some wooden barns or, or storage houses that were built in 1995, but quite huge, 9,000 square meters. And these are the buildings there where we made an architect competition. And a brilliant team from uh, Praxis Architects and uh, Søren Jensen Engineers won the competition with a suggestion for how to retrofit the uh, wooden storage so that you would still recognize it, but that it would be a future uh, innovation house uh, having all our innovation activities under the same roofs.
0: So is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that... We haven't mentioned. I would like to mention the the upcoming EU taxonomy.
2: The EU commission has launched the the green wave, the um, aspiration to up the retrofit or renovation rate to 3%, which is necessary because retrofit is the main chunk of the, the challenge.
0: Yes, I mean the whole retrofit discussion here is is massive. Uh, you know, it's it's really come to a head recently. The Marks and Spencer has a big department store, an Edwardian building right on Oxford Street, that uh, they proposed to demolish and replace with a new build, and that decision has been overturned. It's been called in for um, review, which is huge. You know, it's, it's 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 it feels like a little bit of a tipping point we have something similar here in Copenhagen, people will not have it. And
2: it's not good enough to say that it's all about the the bottom line in terms of pound or euro or krona or dollars. There is another bottom line and that is the green bottom line, which is the planet. So you cannot accept to do significant harm. You have to account
0: for what you take away from the planet and there is
2: only the one planet.
0: Thank you very, very much. Just uh, super interesting, you're so knowledgeable and really, really interesting to hear your perspective. An enormous thank you to VLUX. This episode is brought to you in association with VLUX. On our next episode, timed with the AJ student issue in print, we will speak to Scott Macaulay in Glasgow. Scott is the founder of the Anthropocene Architecture School and we'll be discussing whether architectural education is fit for purpose to tackle climate emergency. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks.